grab your Bibles um, or turn your Bible on um, or grab one under the chair there and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31. And, and in the Bibles we provide, it's page 846. 846. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Well, we're kicking off our money series today, Treasure Managing God's Money. And you may be asking, hey, why a series on money? Many of you, I'm thankful, participated in the survey that, that we had out um, on the internet and then last week. And, and I thought I'd just start out today by sharing some of those results with you. So just to give you a little background, of all the participants that we had in the survey, we had about 60 to 65 participants, 84% of the people said they were in a community group. So, you know, as we're looking at these stats, these are you guys. Th these aren't like some random people who found the link and are answering these questions. Th these are what you told us how you were thinking and even using and stewarding and managing God's money. So, so I want to share a few of these with you. 39% of you say that you don't have a written budget. 42% say they don't consistently stay within their budget. 40% say they currently have debt, and many even shared the amount that they were in debt from small to pretty large. 50% say they don't save at least 10% of their earnings every year. 53% say they don't have an adequately funded an emergency fund. 44% say their giving is not sacrificial or generous. Appreciate the humility and the honesty there. And then 42% say that they are not content with what they have or earn. And then finally, the last question, how would you say your understanding of the biblical principles of stewardship, how well do you get that? 35% say they do not have a great understanding of biblical principles related to managing God's money. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity for us to walk through some of these issues. Look, these stats are what you've told us, and so it's evident that there is a great need for us to talk about what God says about our money. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at many of these issues. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at how do we manage God's money through giving? And then the following week, how do we manage God's money through saving? And then finally, how do we manage God's money through spending? But beyond many of the practical questions dealing with money, I agree with New Testament scholar Craig Blumberg who says this, materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in the world today. Did you get that? We're not just talking about, did you lose some money this week or did you make a wise decision? We're talking about souls. And so, when we come to Mark chapter 10 today, the stakes are just as high. Follow along as I read in Mark chapter 10 beginning in verse 17. 
And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Heavenly Father, would you give us eyes and our hearts and our ears to see and to hear these words. Would you give us grace to receive them and to believe them? God, would you do the impossible today and bring about salvation? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The point of this text and our sermon today is this. God is able. Do you hear those three words there? And those three words will change your life. God is able to save the rich when Jesus becomes to them an eternal treasure. God is able to save the rich when Jesus becomes to them an eternal treasure. And here's what I want to do. I want to draw out four implications of the text, four challenges that I believe God wants us to hear today. And the first one is this. The first challenge is that we should renounce everything and follow Jesus to gain eternal treasure. Coming back to the text here in verse 17, it says, Jesus was setting out on his journey 
when a man ran up and knelt before him. We find out in the other Gospels, this was a young man. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Later, we're going to find out that he was rich because it said he was disheartened and went away because he had many possessions. And he asked Jesus a question. This may even be a question that you've come today wanting an answer to. And he says this, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what a great question. Man, observation number one that I want you to see here is that he views Jesus as a good teacher, but not necessarily as the Son of God. And those are two separate, distinct approaches to coming to Jesus. Jesus is a good teacher, but as we know, he is much more than that. But a second observation in his question, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is concerned with something that he can do, that he must do to secure his salvation, to assure him that salvation will come. And so thus his question reveals how far he is from the previous exhortation that Jesus just shared. Go back up with me to verse 13. In Mark 10, verse 13, Jesus had just shared, and he said, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, the kingdom is not something that we can earn. The kingdom is something that we receive through childlike faith. And as we go on in, the par- in this, this story here of the rich young ruler, we're going to see that he's not approaching Jesus in humility, in childlike faith. He's coming to Jesus with something that he must do. Now notice what Jesus, how Jesus responds. What would you say this week you're at work and somebody asks you, man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what do you say to them? Pray this prayer, walk this aisle, do this, do that. Jesus says, why do you call me good? You see, Jesus, first of all, before he answers his question, he challenges an inadequate understanding of goodness. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Let's work backwards here, and then we'll come back to it. Only God is good. Isn't that what Jesus says here? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is saying that only God has the goodness required to gain eternal life. That's why do you call me good? He's not saying that he's not good. He's just challenging an inadequate understanding. If only God is good, why are you calling me a good teacher? Implications. Unless you are prepared to see me as God, Why do you call me good teacher? In essence, Jesus is telling this man, 
you shouldn't be so flippant in how you throw around the word good. In other words, if only God is good, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Human deeds cannot inherit eternal life. And yet, if we were to go with a camera and pull Medford, what is probably going to be the majority of what people are going to say? How do you gain eternal life? Hey, I'm a good person. Do you need to change your understanding of good today? Because when we start talking about good, Jesus says God ultimately defines what is good and only God is good. None of our human efforts will stand up and compare to the absolute goodness of God. But then he continues his response and he says this, you know the commandments and what does he list? He goes through the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the fifth commandments Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, which is probably some combination of the eighth and ninth commandment. And then he says, honor your father and mother. What's Jesus doing? How do you gain eternal life? You just do these things and you inherit eternal life. And you see what Jesus is doing, he's he's holding up the law as a mirror. This is how Paul describes it in Romans 3 20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Jesus is holding this this mirror up, this law that's going to pierce into his heart. And he's saying, how do you stand up? You you, you, want to talk about goodness. Have you kept the law? And by, let's just get clear. what What does God require? I mean, how many times... Can you mess up and still like be in with God? I mean, how many chances did he give Adam and Eve? God demands perfect obedience, right? That's why there is no one good except God alone. He demands complete, perfect obedience. So you may say, yeah, I, I did. I, I, I mean, let me just ask you, as, you hold, as I hold this mirror of the law up, How do you stand up? Have you murdered? Have you committed adultery? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you completely and perfectly honored your father and your mother? But Jesus doesn't stop there. The story continues, and the man replies, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. I mean, hey guys, if anybody deserves to inherit eternal life, it's this guy, right? I mean, he's holding a lot. Hey, Jesus, I mean, just think of this. Let this sink in. All of those from my youth, he's probably referring to about the age of 13, that I have completely kept these. Probably most of us couldn't even fit in that category. And Jesus replies, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now what I want to do here 
and we're going to spend some time here, and we got to get this. If you don't get this today, you won't. The rest of what we say in the next three sermons about money are not going to mean anything. You've got to get this, and we're going to work backwards because I believe the main thrust of this text here are in these simple words: "Come, follow me." What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? It means to be a follower of Christ. So when, when Jesus calls them, when he calls the disciples, they leave everything and they come and follow. What is essential discipleship is we follow Christ. I mean, going back to Mark chapter 8, he had previously said this in the gospel of Mark. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Guys, get this. No one can inherit eternal life apart from the undivided loyalty and self-surrender to King Jesus. No one. As Bonhoeffer says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cost of discipleship is great. In fact, it will cost you everything. If you're here today and you're kind of exploring this Jesus and Christianity thing, I'm telling you that it will cost you everything. Yeah, we're, we're trying to build a church in Medford by telling people this. Yes, tell people that it's going to cost them everything. That's not comfortable. We don't like that, but it's the gospel. So what does Jesus do? In this particular instance, he tells him, in other words, if you're going to come follow me, you're going to deny yourself. And what that's going to mean for you is that you need to go sell everything and give it to the poor. Why does Jesus tell him to go sell everything and give it to the poor? Jesus knew that money was his treasure and his God. His identity, power, and sense of meaning was all tied up in his wealth. As, he's, as Jesus is holding up this mirror of the law, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, all these commandments, Jesus is pinpointing in and saying, yet, but you've broken the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus is holding up money, and he's saying, that is your God. And it is ruling your life. You see, Jesus was right. In Matthew 6, 24, when he said, you cannot serve both God and money. Hey, later on the passage, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And, and by the way, this word kingdom of God, this language is synonymous with inheriting eternal life. Or how, what must I do to be saved? He's using these interchangeably. So to inherit eternal life is to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says how difficult it is to, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because in the kingdom of God, King Jesus, there will be no rivals. King Jesus demands complete authority over every ounce and inch of your heart. It will cost you everything. Discipleship and following Jesus will cost you everything. And so for this guy, 
What would true repentance look like? If Jesus says, come follow me, I'm going to be king, and you're going to enter and follow the king into the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, then you're going to deny yourself. And so for this guy, he says, you want to show me that you want to follow me? Here's true repentance. Go sell everything. That'll convince me that King Jesus is ruling your life, and you're following me and not the world. What's ruling your heart today? What today is keeping you from completely following King Jesus? What is reigning in your heart? We look at this text, and you probably are sitting here thinking a question. Hey, Do I need to go sell everything and follow Jesus? Hey, here's there are two dangers with this text. One danger is on the one hand to say, no, I don't, you don't need to sell everything. On the other hand, the danger to say that everybody has to always sell everything and give to the poor. Those are two dangers. Say, no, you don't have to do it. One, everybody's got to do it. Now, we do know that Jesus at least told one person to do it, and he could do it again. True repentance for you today could mean going and selling a bunch of stuff to show the world that Jesus is your treasure and not this stuff. That is possible. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, come and follow me. He tells him to sell everything and give to the poor. But look at these words here. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven. So you see, discipleship will cost you everything. But you gain everything. Jesus is having a conversation with this guy and he's saying, hey, here's the deal. You can have all of this bling for the next hundred years or so or you can come follow me and have eternal riches forever. It's not that Jesus doesn't want you to have treasure. He wants you to have lasting treasure. And so I love David Platt in his book Radical. He says this, Jesus is something, someone worth losing everything for. And if we walk away from the Jesus of the gospel, we walk away from eternal riches. So I want to plead with you today that we need to have a right understanding of discipleship and what it means that Jesus completely reigns on our hearts. But I also want you to know, and I would plead with you to convince you that if you renounce everything and follow Jesus, you will gain eternal treasure. And that is better. To the rich man, I want to say, man, what are you doing? Jesus is offering you eternal riches, and you're settling for that. You know who got this? The Apostle Paul. Hey, he's just like the rich young ruler. In Philippians chapter 3, he says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
He's holding up this mirror of the commandments and he's saying, that was me, blameless. But what Paul does is something that the rich young ruler doesn't get. Look at this, how he finishes this. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. You see those words? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is if today you will come and forsake everything and renounce everything and see Jesus who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. As you see that mirror, you're, yeah, I don't match up. I've broken the commandments. Jesus died for your sin. If you'll come to him in childlike faith and receive that, you gain everything. I was thinking about an analogy to to this this week, and it's similar to Halloween. I had to go there. Man, I got to walk around with some of my friends on Halloween Friday night. My kids are with me. They've got their little pumpkin bucket filled with candy. They come home, and you've got this big pumpkin that's turning into a shining idol that they're ready to worship and seek joy and pleasure in. Now, let me tell you this. What does a kid do when you say, we're going to take that on Monday and give it all to the dentist? You want to get into a fight with a kid? Isn't that right, Emmett? You've got this candy that you've set your eye on, you treasure, you desire. And I'm saying, we're going to take that all to the dentist. But what if I come in and say, but the dentist is offering to give you $5 for for, for up to five pounds of candy that you bring in. Now what's going on in their mind? Is it worth it? Right? Now what they're going to end up doing is saying, well, I'm going to keep my favorite and take the junkie candy and I'm going to get the $5 for it. That's a smart kid. <laughs> when we come to the gospel, Jesus is telling the young rich ruler to sell everything for a greater treasure. You see this kid, what would motivate taking it to the dentist is because he knows there is a treasure that is involved, that would be worth the sacrifice of giving it up. And so it is with the gospel. Jesus is a great treasure. But don't miss these words. I've skipped over them on purpose. When we come back to Mark 10, Jesus began this whole challenge by saying this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Did Jesus ask this guy to sell everything because he hated him? Did he ask him to sell everything and give to the poor because he wants him to be miserable? No. 
He told him to give up everything because he loved him. Jesus loved the rich person enough to tell him the truth. Do you know why it's loving for Jesus to ask us to renounce everything and follow Christ? Do you know why this is loving? Because if we do not renounce everything, and by everything, I mean everything, just to make that clear. What we will do is we will even take good things and turn them into great things, and they'll become God things, and they'll rule our life. That's why even with my kids, I'm grateful for the blessing, but I say, God, you have given me these, and they're yours. I even renounce my wife and my brothers and my sisters. They're yours because my tendency, God, is I'm going to take my kid and I'm going to create an idol out of him and I'm going to worship him. So it's loving for Jesus to say, give me everything because when it's in the hands of the king, we won't worship it. We'll worship the king. So here, Jesus say, it will cost you everything. Here, a loving king say, don't worry. I'm willing to give you the kingdom. I am a good father. I will shepherd you. I will care for you. I'm going to adopt you, and you're going to be an heir. And mine, what's mine is yours. But sell everything but I'll care for you. The rich young ruler did not see it. And it says, he was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's be clear. His wealth is not what kept him from eternal life. Jesus is not saying that there's only going to be poor in heaven. He went away sorrowful because he refused to exchange the God of wealth for the one true God in Jesus Christ who offers him real treasure. That's why he did not inherit eternal life. Guys, get this. Listen up. The way you use money is an indicator of your eternal destination. The way you use money is an indicator of your eternal destination. Know what I didn't say. I didn't say the way you use money earns eternal life, but it's an indicator. If Jesus is your treasure, do you think that should be reflected in the way you use money? Can I get an amen? Yes. It sure happened for the early church. Man, Jesus... Ascends to heaven, commissions the disciples. Peter preaches the gospel at Pentecost. Thousands are baptized and come to faith. And you know what it says they start doing in Acts 2.45? Look at this. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Immediately, we have an example in the early church that they were selling things to care for people. It continues on. Go to Acts 4, Acts 4, 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What's my point? My point is this. 
when Jesus gets a hold of your heart, it's evidenced in true repentance. And it's evidenced in the way you spend money. Second truth I want to share with you today is that we must beware of the dangerous deceitfulness of riches. Beware of the dangerous deceitfulness of riches. Verse 23, we got to move on. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed. So Jesus said again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now I know some have said that maybe this eye of a needle is like a passageway in Jerusalem, but I think that would miss the point. I really think he's talking about the eye of a needle. And the point is, is how are you going to fit a camel, one of the largest animals in that area, through the eye of a needle? You're not. And the disciples get that because their next response is, well, then who can be saved? It's impossible. Now, what I don't want us to walk away today and lose the impact of these words and to turn Jesus into a middle-class American Jesus that makes us comfortable. Because that's our tendency. We want to look through the lens of 21st century America and we say, but Jesus, you, you don't, you really mean like it's really difficult for the rich? Yes, that's what he means. I mean, in the parable of the sower, you guys remember that? He's out sowing seeds. You guys know what it says? I've got it on the screen here. And it says this. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Guys, we, we need to have ears to hear that there is a warning that Jesus is giving about money. And, and if you were thinking, hey, this is just one passage in Mark, no. Go read through the Gospels, specifically read through the Gospel of Luke. And what are you going to see? Jesus over and over and over comes back to the issue of money. You know why money is so deceitful? It's because it encourages self-sufficiency, and independence from God. If, if you're here today and you would say, you know what, I probably fit in the poor category. We probably got the rich and poor and somewhere in between. What I want you to hear today is that being rich is not your solution to life. Because your tendency is to look to those who have rich and say, if I just had that, it would solve all the problems I got in life. So poor and rich, I want us all to hear these words here. If you've got enough, the money's deceitful because you think if you have enough of it, well then, I don't need God. I got everything I need. I can buy the medicine I need. I can buy a place to live. I can buy enough food that I've got. I'm, I'm, I don't even have to work. That's my problem. Money's the solution. I just get enough money. I can retire from this job I don't like, and I can just enjoy this money. I don't need God. But there are problems with placing your hope in riches. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Riches lead to arrogance and pride. I earned it. It's mine. I can do with it whatever I want. God, don't tell me how to use my money. Who gave you the ability to earn that money? Riches can lead my heart astray. In Matthew 6, which we're going to look at a little bit more next week, says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And and there's almost a a double-sided coin here. One is, is my heart, if my heart is treasuring Christ, well, then it's going to affect where I treasure and where I spend money. But in another way, it has a reverse effect. Where I spend my money has has the potential to actually make my heart chase after it. You see this, go buy something. Spend a lot of money on it. Go buy a boat. And just watch your heart chase after that boat. Riches can easily be lost. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in. And still, this is how riches deceive you. You think they're a secure ground that you can stake your life on. And they can be gone like that. Beyond that, riches cannot ultimately prevent death. Man, I know we were probably all saddened over the death of the mayor this past week, right? And cancer and how it took over his life. There is not enough money in the world to save your body from death. You may extend your death a little bit longer because you have a little more money to throw at some drugs, but you cannot prevent death. Every single one of us, 100% of us, will face death one day. Riches cannot save your soul. Mark in 8.36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The main problem of riches is that they come from a limited perspective. I, I love Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle. He says this. He says, don't live for the dot. Live for the line. Imagine there's a line from one end of this gym, gym to the other that represents all eternity. Do you know what your life, your however many years you live, how much of that is on that line? Maybe a dot, if that. And you know what this rich young ruler did? He threw away the line for the dot. You can have riches for this lifetime of 100 years, or you can have riches for all of eternity. Third truth that I want us to get from this text is know that God is able to save even the richest of sinners. Verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, guys, get this, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What does he mean here, the all things? It's this salvation of anyone is possible with God. The Jews would have looked at this rich young ruler and they would have thought, hey, this is, this is a Jew, this was a man of God, and he's got money, so he's blessed of God. They would have looked at somebody as rich as somebody that God's blessing was upon. And so, the, and so the disciples are sitting there thinking, hey, if this guy who's kept all these commandments and has this money and seems to receive the blessing of God can't be saved, well, then who can be saved? 
So you may be here today and you're saying, you know what? Money is not my God. You still need salvation. And God is able to save. Salvation for everyone, including the rich, is a work of God. Apart from the grace of God, no one will be saved. So none of us, by our own merits, can save ourselves. How do we know God is able to save even the richest of sinners? In the Gospel of Luke, right after this story and encounter of the rich young ruler, do you know what we have a story of? It's Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, too, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and the text says he was rich. And you know what Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus climbs up on that tree. Jesus come calls him, hey, I'm headed to your house. And, and, and the people were upset because they said, Jesus is going into the house of a sinner. And you know what Zacchaeus says? He says this. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Now, did Zacchaeus giving to the poor save him? No. But what does his giving to the poor tell you? It tells you that there was a greater treasure going on in his heart, that he came to Christ in humility and childlike faith that would lead him to sell so that he might have Christ. You see, when God saves by the work of the Spirit, you don't see the spirit, but you see its effects. And so you, how, how do you know if, if God has saved you? I want every single person to ask themselves, has it changed the way I spend money? And if the gospel hasn't changed the way I spend money, can I really say that Jesus is my treasure? Fourth truth. Believe that the cost of discipleship far outweighs that of non-discipleship. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, hey, Jesus, look at us. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is holding out the blessing and benefits of the gospel. Is the cost of discipleship great? Yes. But Jesus is saying the benefits of the gospel will far outweigh and surpass any sacrifice that you may ever make. Oh, you've got you've to give up a father? You know what the gospel for some of us means? It means that our families neglect us. To come and follow Christ means that I get shunned by my family. And Jesus says this, you followed me and you may have left a father, but know this, in the community of faith, you've got a hundred that are as fathers for you and will care for you. 
Oh, you've left homes and houses. Maybe it's not because that you've been rejected. Maybe it's because you're going and fulfilling the mission of God and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth or children minister or the ministry of God in a place like Boston. And Jesus is saying, you will find in that place brothers and sisters and homes and houses and lands in the community of faith. But he also says you will face persecution. Why does he include that in there? So it's like, hey, let's get back down to reality, Peter. We just read it earlier in Romans 8. You are heirs with Christ, provided that you suffer with him. The news of the kingdom of God is that we have one foot in this world and one in the one to come. Acts 6, the new creation of the drama of Scripture, we still long and wait for. And in that day, all enemies and persecution and death and sickness will be destroyed. But until that day, we will still face persecution. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on. And it says at the end of verse 30, and in the age to come, eternal life. No one who for my sake and for the gospel leaves these things, will not a hundredfold receive more and inherit eternal life. So to answer the question, how do you inherit eternal life? You come follow Jesus. And in Jesus, you get an eternal treasure that far surpasses anything this world could offer. Is Is Jesus worth it? I'll end with the quote by Jim Elliott who says this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you don't get this, it doesn't matter what we have to say about giving. Because you're going to hear the sermon on giving and Jesus. If he's not reigning in your heart, it doesn't matter what we say about giving. It doesn't matter what we say about saving or what we say about spending. If Jesus isn't king over your heart, it doesn't matter. So who's your king? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We acknowledge that these are tough words to hear today. They're tough because our own sin latches on to money and deceives us. God, I pray that Redemption Hill Church would be a church that is characterized by absolute and complete surrender to King Jesus who rules over every dollar, every penny, every IRA, every saving account, every credit card, every check, every purchase that he would reign supreme. God, would you help us to repent today? God, would you rip idols of money and security from our hearts. 
and replace them with the treasure of Christ. God, we need your spirit to work. That as this chorus of the song we're about to sing says, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. God, help us to sing that with authenticity today. And may it be true of us. God, would you show us what it looks like this week to repent of materialism. God, you reign supreme. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.